Today's scripture comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12:31 to 13:13. You can follow along in your bulletins or screen above or the Bible. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is Word of God. Amen. Good morning, New Mercy. I just want to um, go over one more announcement. Next month, next week, we actually have Movement Sunday where all three summer mission trip team will come up and present, pray together, and also just share some of the testimonies. Starting the week after that in September, the entire month will be dedicated on community here at New Mercy as one community uh, for the 9.30, 10.30, and 1. So throughout the entire month, there will be devotionals that we're going to encourage all of us to partake together. There are also going to be activities like bowling or some outdoor and indoor activities that we're going to encourage everyone to participate in. And also all the preaching and all the sermons and uh, Wednesday night prayers will be dedicated to this theme of community. So I highly encourage you to get involved. There's many opportunities, but just wanted to get, uh, give you a heads up that starting in two weeks for the entire month of September, we really want entire church to pray together and to think about what it means to be a community here at New Mercy. So um, just wanted to give you that heads up. It's probably in your bulletin just in case you're curious about what that is. Today, um, we will be speaking on a passage that is perhaps the most familiar passage in the entire world. When Christians and non-Christians throughout the countries are asked, what is one passage that you know from the Bible This is by far number one or number two that comes up other than John 3.16. It's a very well-known, famous passage. And it's about a topic that we're all interested in, but something that we all, you know, are used to talking about. Love, 
In fact, my wife Hannah was asking me、um, two weeks ago. So John, what are you going to preach before your last one? Before you head out to sabbatical? And I told her, you know, I'll preach on love. And she kind of like laughed at me, like, okay, what about love? And I was like, I'm just going to preach about love. <laughs> that's kind of it. And、uh, so, what passage are you going to use? And you know, that's one of the pluses and minuses, minus sides of having a, a pastor as your wife. Is that it's nice because you encourage each other and re- review, and you,、um, you know, in, you know, think things out together. But on the other hand, you also critique each other and we criticize each other, especially when it comes to teaching her sermons. And she was asking me all these detailed questions about what are you going to preach about love? I was like, love. It's just preaching about love. You know, <laughs> there's nothing else to it. So as we read today in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, today we want to dive in into Word of God. Uh, simple yet deep,、um, uh, perhaps the most meaningful word that comes out agape in the Bible. So at this time, I just want to encourage all of us to bow our heads and let's pray one more time to Spirit to come join us as we invite God to move us. Lord, we thank you for this church, this worship. May this time be one that puts a smile on your face, where you are encouraged and you are pleased. For your sons and daughters have come together to give you all glory and honor. So be with us, in Christ's name. We pray, Amen. So one of the complicated things in my life is that when people ask me what I do for a living, there's three ways for me to answer that question.、Um, it's a pastor, or I can answer by saying I'm a counselor, or I can say I'm a professor. And when I say the two latter, professor or counselor, there are certain common responses from people, you know,、um, and there are kind of common questions that come about that are fairly easy to answer. It's kind of like, what do you do? You know, who do you counsel? What kind of people do you see? Or what do you teach? Where do you teach? That kind of stuff. But when I tell people that I'm a pastor, things change. There are people who gravitate towards this answer and start asking all kinds of theological questions. Like, I just met you, and you're asking me about question of evil. Why does evil exist in this world? And can you help me resolve that question in the next five minutes? You know, one time I, I was on an airplane,、uh, a flight to Texas to do my co- cousin's wedding, and on the way there, I spoke with this man for hours, and it was just like theological questions after theological questions. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so tired. You know, and a lot of people assume that because we went to seminary, we can answer these questions. What? Why is there evil in the world if God's good? I'm like, I just found out that you know, you are 40 and you are an accountant, and the next thing you're gonna throw at me is the problem of evil question.、Um, but then there are others. There are people like, oh, I'm a pastor, and they're like. All right, <laughs> stay away from me. You know, like I'm not gonna talk to you. And it's kind of interesting because、uh, the responses we get vary so much, far left to far right. When I tell people that I'm a pastor, and it ends up being that I don't know why. I don't know if it's just me or like I feel like I just invite a lot of strangers to come speak to me. And then being an extrovert myself. Like some of you, I have no problem talking to people, strangers that I just randomly bump bump into. So,、uh, the other week in Fort Lee, I was at a cafe、um, working on my sermon and reading, and I ended up talking to this random stranger, complete stranger, once again. And it's always interesting how people 
strangers these people react because one of the first questions they ask always is, what do you do for a living? So we start talking. He's an older gentleman, a grandfather, and he got curious when I told him I'm a pastor. So what church do you serve at, you know? And he began to ask questions like, where is it located? How many people attend your church? What kind of denomination is it? How, you know, or what kind of, what kind of um, service do you hold? But among all these questions, we found ourselves laughing together when I tried to answer his final question, which was, what type of people goes to your church? You guys. <laughs> you know, and it, I could have answered it so many different ways, but the first thing that came up to my mind was this, that oh, we have all kinds of people, but mostly we have young people. You know? In fact, the oldest member at our church is probably not even 50 yet. And you know, to that, he chuckled and he responded by saying, you know, you mean if I start going to your church, I automatically become the oldest member at your church right away? I was like, yep. <laughs> but hopefully you don't become just the oldest, you would become the wisest. And I invite him to church. Uh, never saw him again, and I don't think he's visited. But I found out that after this connection that we had, we talked for 30 minutes. I found out that he was a... Um, um, retired pilot living in Inglewood Cliffs right here. And he's preparing to move down to Florida for the rest of his retirement years. And now that he pried into my life, I got a chance to pry into his life. And one of the things is when you tell them you're a pastor, they ask all these spiritual theological questions and perhaps sometimes personal questions. I feel like it's bad and good. It's bad because like, sometimes I'm not in the mood to answer these questions, but it's good sometimes because now I, you gave me the green light to ask personal questions about your life. So my questions got deeper and more personal as I kept going at it. You know, where are you from? How long have you lived here? What do you do for a living? Then one by one, the questions got more personal. So how did you like your job? Do you have any kids? You know, do you miss working? If you're retired, what are you doing with that notepad in front of you? Because I couldn't help but notice this man, this older gentleman, perhaps in his 70s or 80s perhaps even, and he had this notepad. You know one of those older notepads? It has like, it was yellow, green, blue, and, you know, notepad, and on the left side there's metal rings. He flipped them. He was like jotting stuff down all throughout. So I had to ask him, what are you doing with that notepad? You know, what are you writing down there? And he answered, you know, I'm working on a personal project of mine. I, I, I pried more. I said, what is it? Can you tell me? He said, I'm writing a will. I'm taking notes down to write a personal will. Then his phone rang, and it was time for him to go and time for me to go. And part of me was like, oh, what a relief. It's like saved by the bell moments. like, ah, oh, will. Like, next thing we're going to do is talk about death. And his entire life for the next 30 minutes or more. And I have to sit there and listen because that's another thing that you tell people you're a pastor or a counselor. Like you feel obligated to sit there and listen to everything that they say. Right? Because you're a pastor and a counselor. Like they expect you to do that because that's what you do for a living. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, thank God I can walk away. But the other part was I was kind of sad, you know, walking away. Because talking about his will meant that. I was about to listen in on his life and things that were very meaningful. Things that matter the most in his life. Because isn't that what writing a will is? You're thinking about 
your potential death that is to come, and you start reflecting, you start thinking about the values in your life, things that are valuable, people that are valuable in your life, as you think about what you're going to leave behind in this world that we're all going to leave once. So on my drive back home that day, I thought about my will. Now, I'm young. I don't have any health issues that I know of at this point that prompted me to think about this will other than just this conversation. What would I say? What would I leave behind in this life? To whom would I leave my messages and my belongings and why? So the questions flooded in and they didn't stop. And to me, it was merely a mental exercise, right? Okay, well, there it goes, will. Didn't really sit there and write it. But to this grandpa that day, it was not just a mental exercise. It was a serious review of his own life. What he wants to leave behind, what mattered to him, who mattered to him, and why. Have you ever think about writing a will? Or perhaps you had to do it? Think about the process of writing a will. Most of us delay or postpone this process because we don't like such a responsibility. I mean, who likes thinking about their death that is to come, right? About leaving this world. Nobody, you know, unless you're really depressed or you're really sad, then perhaps some people in a sad moment think about that. But most of us, we don't want to think about this. So we delay or postpone this process. We all acknowledge the fact that one day we will go, right? And we will die and we will go. Um, but to acknowledge that and to write about it, to think about it, it gives us tremendous anxiety and it makes us feel uncomfortable. To think about it and work on it when we are this young, perhaps is the way we think. You know, why do I need to work on a will right now? It seems inappropriate or to embark in such a journey or project seems not, I'm not ready for it. And usually when people write a will, they say that you think about two major themes, topics. One is your assets or your possession. What do you own? What have you acquired that you're going to leave behind? And this part makes us think about why we work so hard to gain all these things, right? Why do you put in the 60, 70 hours a week? Why do you try to get promoted in your job? You know, why do you switch jobs? Why did I sacrifice so much time, energy, and even relationship to acquire all this stuff? that I have to leave behind, and who would I leave it behind to? This past week, um, my wife and I had to pack our two-bedroom apartment because we are going on our sabbatical tomorrow, for those of you who didn't know. I will be away for four months and to Korea and spend time with my folks there, my parents. But as you're packing, I know many of you guys, if not all of us, have moved at least once in our lifetime where you have to pack your belongings. I'm packing and I'm like, in a two-bedroom apartment, how can we have so much stuff? I'm like, you know, you're packing and you're writing what the contents are. You're like, toys, toys, toys. Like, how many boxes of toys are, do we have in this little apartment? No wonder we felt like, like if this was so, such a little space. If you think about the space that we all have, in my family, we have two kids and my, me and my wife, Four, that should be plenty of space. But I'm unpacking, I'm like, shoes, 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 clothes, clothes. I'm like, 
How many of these boxes do we have? And it makes you wonder, why do I have so much of this stuff? You know, what did I acquire for? And if you push yourself and challenge yourself a step farther, thinking about your death that is to come. It's a morbid thought, I know, right? But I can help because I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm packing and I'm like, oh, what if I were to write a will? Who will get these? In fact, the one that I think about the most is like, I know it's silly, but there's this box that I treasure. It's like my treasure box. And it's not like the most, you know, expensive things that I own. Um, but it's my baseball cards that I've collected over the years. When I was a teenager, it has like a special place in my heart. So I only open them up like once a year just to see that they're there. And just to make sure that they're all still in their plastic wrappers. And that my kids didn't touch it. And as I'm opening this box up, I'm like, oh, before I close it, let's just go through. So I'm reminiscing about my old childhood days, and now they're worth nothing. But at the time, I thought it was going to be so valuable. I'm going to be rich, mom. (laughs) Don't throw this box away. And um, my mom threw out the wrong box. She threw out the comic book box. So that's gone. So I have this, like, a box of baseball cards that's worth pennies. But I'm going through it, and I'm like, who would I leave this box with? Mark, my brother, or my friends, I'm like, who even wants this, right? But to me, it's so valuable. And when I think about leaving this world or leaving somewhere else and I need to give this to somebody, I think about my possessions, things that I have acquired, and you start putting values on it. Is this meaningful? And who would I leave it to? The second thing that we always think about when we write a will is not possessions or assets, but we start thinking about meaningful relationships. Who matters the most to you and why? Whether we like it or not, we have to reflect on all the relationships that we've had in our life, especially those that are significant. How do I feel about the brother I no longer talk to? What about my daughter who married the man I felt was unworthy of her? What about my former spouse, whom I feel like I could have been more gracious to? Writing a will makes us review and think about all those around us. Those who are for us and those who are against us. You can't help but to ask yourself whether leaving these possessions to these people would actually mean anything to them. Or if what you leave behind will be appreciated and used well. Ultimately, as you think about your life and death, writing a will, means that you ask yourself this one ultimate question. What do I love and who do I love? Writing a will, thinking about your life and death, is writing about love, isn't it? Loves of the past, loves of the present, loves of the future. It's because... What matters most in life is love. And we know this. This is the most important thing in life. There's a line in the movie, um, Love Actually, that reminds all of this, all of this perhaps. In this movie, um, they explore different ways that people uh, love others and receive love. Different forms of love that takes place in relationships. And in the opening scene, there's Hugh Grant, and, and his character um, says that whenever he's depressed, he imagines this arrival section in Heathrow Airport as people go in and out and hug each other and embrace each other and cry and laugh together. 
And he says that he finds joy in thinking about those moments. And as he's reflecting upon this, he says this one line. When the planes hit the Twin Towers in New York City, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. Hmm. If you only had one minute left in your life right now, five minutes, who would you call? What would you think about? Right? I, I wouldn't be calling people I hate or people I want to have revenge against. I wouldn't be thinking about all the times that I was disappointed because I, didn't, I wasn't able to acquire something or buy something. I'm not going to think about those moments I got rejected from a job or a school or broken relationships. Most likely, you're going to quickly think about those people who matter the most right now that you want to connect with. And what's the first thing you want to say if you had a minute on that phone? You're going to tell them how much you love them. How much they mean in your life. Why? Because love is the most important thing in our life. We know how important love is. We know that it is key to relationship. We know that it gives meaning to life. And we all live in hopes that our lives will be filled with love. And Apostle Paul knows this all too well. So he begins talking about love with this one line here. And it's oftentimes we read chapter 13, verse 1, and move forward. But as you can see, we put it in verse 31, the last line as he ends chapter 12, because it is a transition sentence that sets up the entire chapter. And you'll see how these two connect. So he says, Paul, And now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way. Paul writes these beautiful, profound words about love. You know, love is patient, love is kind. In chapter 13, the chapter that we all know. He sets it up by saying, Here is the most excellent way. Paul knew that love is the key to life and that God created life to be this way. And it is the most important thing in our life. But there's a problem. As much as we yearn and want this in our life, to love well and receive love well, we're all fumbling our way through life trying to figure this out. How to do this thing called love, right? Friendships, brothers and sisters, parents, significant others, in marriages. Think about it. Why is it that so many of us dread going home for the holidays and having those intimate moments with our siblings and parents? Why is it that so many of us begin marriages truly wanting to love one another, yet struggle day to day to express that love? It's difficult. Why is it that in raising our children, we can become so frustrated, so angry, that we no longer know what love even looks like? Because when we hold a baby in our arms, you know, they're born, and we're like, oh, so beautiful. Then they grow up, they start talking, they start climbing, they start throwing things, throwing up, and they start not listening to you. You forget all about love. I forgot all about love for like 10 minutes this morning. I gave them cups of cereal. Next thing I know, I go to the bathroom, I come out, it's all over the floor. You know? You forget about love in those moments, you know? Why? Because it's tough. It's difficult to love. And to receive love. 
Maybe it stems from the simple truth that we need help with love. And I'm not talking about this kind of self-help love books and psychology section in the bookstores. I'm not talking about like eHarmony, online dating website, love help. I'm talking about the kind of help that aids us in tapping into the very resource itself of where the love comes from and what love actually is. Because if that's not possible, I think I would lose hope in life. We've all had times when our relationships have become so frustrating and painful that all we can do is cover our anger and hurt, and we try to move on. To ask us to love in those situations is well beyond our capacity. I've been there. I know you've been there. Love? Care about love right now? I'm barely surviving right now. When this occurs, it doesn't help to ask us to look deeper within ourselves because our love tank is empty. You might think less of me for admitting this, but not only have I been in a situation which my tank has been empty, but there are times I'm a human being. Like, there are times that my love tank gets so empty that, like, I get so frustrated and so angry that I don't want to see people. That I've also lost my will to love certain types of people or certain people. The irony behind this passage it's that it's a passage that's most used in weddings. As we celebrate a beginning of marriage, we read these words, right? Love is kind. (laughs) Love is everlasting. Love is perfect. But the irony behind this is that it's also the passage that people struggle the most with when they try to live out their marriages or in relationships. To love like the way Paul proposes here is not easy. When people ask us often, pastors, to officiate their weddings, and we ask them, hey, what passage? Is there any passage in the Bible that you want us to put in the wedding ceremony? This is it. In fact, one uh, statistic show that in Japan, where the country is less than like 3-5% Christians, when they have a Japanese wedding, this passage gets very often used. Even non-Christians... Love this passage because it sounds so poetic. It sounds so amazing, right? There's a ring to it that no other writings on love can compare. So it's the most quoted, most used, especially in weddings. But to love like the way Paul proposes here is not easy. In fact, it's not easy to even attempt at it. In fact, it's impossible so he gives us a warning with big flashing red lights he gives us a warning in chapter 13 here Paul is not talking about how lovely love is okay He didn't think about weddings. He didn't think about marriages. He didn't think about friendships. He wasn't thinking about those things. In fact, he was thinking about the church in Corinth. He's writing this letter, chapter 13, from a prison, writing to the people in Corinth, the Christian brothers and sisters. And if you see chapter 12 and chapter 14, it's about spiritual gifts, how God has given all of us different unique spiritual gifts. But if you look at chapter 12, before we get to 13, he is rebuking them. He's not saying you have all these spiritual gifts and among them the best is love. No, he's saying 
There are spiritual gifts, and you all have them. And why are you fighting over it? Because see, people in Corinth at the time were fighting over whose spiritual gift mattered more. Who mattered more? I'm more valuable in this church. No, you're more valuable in this church. No, our group is more valuable. No, you're not good enough. Because they were fighting, Paul is writing in prison this letter in chapter 12 about spiritual gift. And in 13, it's a warning flash. Be careful what you're fighting about. Because the most excellent way is love. And you're not practicing that. You're not talking about what matters the most in life. So writing this letter, Paul is speaking to us, even today, that this is not supposed to be a poetry or poem. Paul did not have weddings in mind when he wrote these words about love. He intended these words about love to be used to help solve the specific problem of destructive manner in which the Corinthians were fighting against each other. So here in the letter to Corinthians church, Paul wrote about love here because he was trying to rebuke the Corinthians. These are words of warning. And such misunderstanding creates trouble not only for expectations regarding the day-to-day realities of relationship, but the realities of the church. Because really, Paul is not thinking about the individual relationship, although you can take it in that context. Really, what he's speaking about is the relationships that happen in church. As brothers and sisters in Christ, what should matter the most is love. Embracing each other, forgiving each other, encouraging each other, not fighting over who's better and who's worse. The mission of the church is to gather like-minded people, likable people together sometimes. And we think, this is what church means. And how often do you hear about churches that begin because, hey, you're like me. We're of the same color. We think alike. We have similar jobs. We're in a similar situation in life. We earn about the same. We have a certain education, social status together. So let's form a church and we begin. And how often have you also heard of those churches just folding, collapsing? Because a community, a church, a community in faith that is unified from the beginning, from the onset, because we are like each other or we like each other, it will never last. Because that is not what a church is. So like the church in Corinth, as they began this church, very well-known, famous church in Corinth, as they fight and they're falling apart, Paul writes this warning. Because true love is not measured by how good it makes us feel. In the context of 1 Corinthians, it's better to say that the measure of love is its capacity for unity in midst of disagreements and tensions. It's about how well we fight with each other. Love is about how well we fight with each other in midst of conflict. So Paul's words here were not that of flowery expression, but it is an exact opposite one. So let me read to you this section a little bit differently. Perhaps the way it was intended to be read, and perhaps the way the people in Corinth read it as. It's not... Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not envy, it does not boast. No, it's not the way we read it in weddings or church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. You people of Corinth, do you realize that love does not dishonor others? It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. You brothers and sisters, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. How can we live this way? How can we love others this way? We can't. It's impossible to love like this. On our own. Sometimes we try so hard with our human efforts to love others. Some of us love ourselves. And it's so hard. We drag our feet. Paul is ultimately informing Corinthians and to us to remember, to remind us that Jesus is this love. And therefore, we must look at Jesus in order to know how to love. Before we get so encouraged or pumped up, perhaps to love others this way, we must first realize that we cannot love this way. First, we understand that this love is impossible on our own. Only then the coin flips and you see the other side of the same coin, which is man. Jesus is the love who is patient, kind, does not boast, does not envy. He's the perfect love. Only then, only once we realize that we are sinners that does not deserve such love from God, that doesn't deserve such grace, once we understand that love is given to us freely by our Father, then we can flip and start loving others and love ourselves. On our end then, We are to constantly remind ourselves about such love of Jesus that washed away our sins and embraced us for who we are. And as a response to such amazing love, we are to try best with the aid of Holy Spirit to live like Jesus did. So Paul is declaring here ultimately, rather than go and love like this, yes. But first realize Jesus Christ himself is this love. For you and me. So you can insert Jesus where the word love comes out. Let me read to you. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. In the end, it's not so much about how much we know about love and how much we can practice love. Ultimately, it's about pointing to the cross to confess and declare the greatest gift that God's given us, His love, 
was ultimately given to us freely when we ourselves, our broken people, sinful people, imperfect people, can receive this thing called agape, the one-way love. And the word that is used here in Greek is agape. It's not the love. See, Greeks had different words for love. It's not the word that talked about brotherly and sisterly love, where I show you love, you show me love. It's two-way. But the word that is specifically used here by Paul is agape, one-way love. No matter what you're like, no matter how many times you turn away from me, no matter how many times you say no to me and shut the door in my face, I will be here. I will always love you one way love. That is the love Paul is speaking about here in Corinthians chapter 13. Ultimately, it's about us pointing to the cross to confess and declare that the greatest gift of love was given to us by the grace of God. So whether we're going through tough times or good times, I mean, I know many of you, tough times. Some of you, having a great time, great season. Whether we are experiencing misery or joy, whether we are facing difficult decisions or easy ones, we are called to be reminded of how much God loves us a sinner like us. And once we accept that, once we are reminded of that, once we taste that, I truly believe that the love of Christ will overflow into our life. It will will carry on to others. When you are moved by the gospel message that God loves us though I do not deserve it, next thing you know, you become more loving. You become more patient. You become more kind. You do not boast. You do not envy. I really hope that new mercy, all those who are here gathered together worshiping, will truly take that to heart as we are reminded by Paul this morning to love, not because you can love, but because God loved us first. John the Evangelist, the author of, you know, 1 John, 2 John, and book of Revelations and the Gospel of John, lived out his days on the island called Patmos. And one day, one of his followers came and spoke to him. Teacher, master, he said, tell me one thing. I've always wondered in these books and letters that you're writing, right? why is it that you always write about love? How come you don't write anything else? Because if you look at those books that John wrote, it's all about love. So St. John paused for a while, waiting for his disciple to work out and answer perhaps his own question that he threw at him. And then he finally said this, because in the end, there isn't anything else. There's only love. At the end of our lives, there isn't anything else. I challenge you, brothers and sisters, go home and try to write a will. Try to think about your death. Think about what you're leaving behind and what you want people to remember you for. I guarantee you, you cannot help but to ask yourself, who do I love and why are the things that I love 
existing in my life. I hope this is a time to review our life, to look into our life, to ask ourselves what is valuable. And is that what you want to invest in? You know, most of us are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, some of us maybe perhaps 50, 60, but I don't know. But uh, safely assuming here, we've all lived about half of our life or less. What do you want to live your life for? To practice and to show and to be moved by the grace of God who loves us so much though we're imperfect? Or are we investing in acquiring things of this world that we're eventually all going to leave behind? And that message hopefully convicts you as much as it convicts me. Let us pray together.